Welcome back to another episode of More Happy Life. This is your host, Andy Proctor. I am so excited to introduce to you today's guest on today's show. Oh my gosh. Eric Barker is an amazing person, and he is somebody who I've been following for years, probably a decade, I think, or over a decade. Uh, He's one of those um, email newsletters that I have never unsubscribed to. There's so many email newsletters that I've unsubscribed to, and this one is not one of those. It is that good. Like, every time I actually read Eric's articles, I just, I feel like I'm a better person. And it makes me have more energy, have just tips to uh, improve my happiness, uh, to improve my relationships, to improve my money management, like just everything about it, like decision making, it's just so good. Anyways, so uh, Eric Barker really is amazing, uh, an amazing writer, and we had the opportunity to chat today, so I'm so excited to uh, introduce you to him. So he is the author of The Wall Street uh, journal best-selling Barking Up the Wrong Tree book, uh, which has sold over half a million copies, and they have been translated into 19 different languages. Uh, this same book was the subject, actually, of a question on Jeopardy, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, over 500,000 people have subscribed to his weekly newsletter. Like I was saying, it's so good. I hope you go subscribe now as well. Uh, his work has been covered by the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Financial Times, and many others. Eric is also a sought-after speaker. He's given talks at MIT, Yale, Google, uh, the United States Military Central Command, um, the Olympic Training Center. I mean, he's 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 spoken all over the place. Uh, his new book, Plays Well with Others, uh, actually came out today. So, you guys, it's amazing and uh, it's so good. And we talk about it in our interview today, so you get a little bit of a taste. I hope you listen to this uh, this interview because it's really good. But I also hope you just you go and get the book because it's out and it's amazing. And I highly recommend it. So we, we talk about relationships, which is what I'm studying for my PhD. Uh, the, so the importance of social connection, friendship, and uh, positive social relationships. And we, we go into detail about, you know, why these things are so important um, on this in this conversation. So I hope you listen, and I'm excited to introduce you to Eric Barker. All right, welcome, Eric, to the show. It is great to have you on the More Happy Life podcast today. Um, I have I have loved reading your your blog posts, and I think I've actually been doing so for I I want to say like ten years. I mean, maybe you can correct me on and, and that's very possible, man. It's been, yeah. <laughs> my my blog is my blog is now thirteen. My blog is in middle school. My blog is around <laughs> for thirteen years. I I I. It is funny to think about that that there were probably people who were reading my blog posts on dating and ignoring my posts on parenting, and now they're posts that are like like looking at my posts on parenting and ignoring the posts on dating. Like it's been <laughs> that long that you have like like people are undergoing phase changes in in their life. It's so crazy. No, and it's uh, it's it's interesting that you know I've I've been reading your blog for longer than I've been married, and so yeah, I'm I've, <laughs> I. <laughs> I've, uh, I have, uh, I've loved it. And, um, I've often used, uh, your email newsletter as an example of, of great, of a great newsletter, because 
I've never unsubscribed, right? And I, I don't know how many newsletters I've unsubscribed to, probably hundreds of them. And, um, and I've, I've always just, you know, you've, you've kept me wrapped. And so I've, uh, I've really appreciated that. And, you know, it's kind of this mix of intelligent humor and, you know, science backed tips um, that I think have driven a lot of even changes that I've made. I actually remember, uh, pulling out one of your articles about decision-making when I was trying to decide whether to buy a really crappy house <laughs> and, <laughs> and it helped, it actually helped me to, to pull out at the last minute. And um, anyways, so thank you for that. Um, but yeah, so today though, I, I'd love to, to focus on your new book uh, plays well with others. And uh, I guess the, the, the subtitle is surprising, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. <laughs> um, so, so let's go ahead and dive in and talk about relationships uh, first. So, uh, so first of all, I'd love to understand like what, what made you want to write about relationships right now? I mean, it's, it's funny because it kind of shifted. Uh, basically, you know, my first book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, looked at, you know, the maxims of success we, we grew up with, uh, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I kind of did the Mythbusters treatment on them and looked at the social science to, to bring a verdict to it. And it only felt natural. It's like, okay, we've got all these maxims we, we, we learned growing up about relationships. Uh, you know, love conquers all. A friend in need is a friend indeed. And and the truth is, I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, not the best with relationships. Uh, like that's that's something, uh, you know, in terms of big five, very introverted, uh, not very agreeable. Uh, you know, it's like uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not. So for me, it was, it was, it seemed like a natural thing to do next. It seemed like something I personally could learn a lot from because I had a lot to learn. Uh, my my social skills kind of peaked in preschool. And I like basically was like, great, okay, this is gonna be the next thing. And it was really crazy that we closed the deal for the next book. And then literally two weeks later, uh, California locked down uh, with the pandemic. Oh, and so right. I, I, I went from writing this book that, you know, I knew I could learn a few things in writing and that I figured, hey, you know, people will find this useful to realizing no, uh, like people are really going to, this is going to be a, need to be a social defibrillator. Like people are really <laughs> going to need this. And so I, I like, I like heard the Rocky theme playing. Like I needed to, like, you know, really, I was a man on a mission. So all of a sudden this, this thing that I had already decided to do, like just took on a whole nother level of meaning given, given the pandemic. That's, that's, that's so interesting. And it really is, I think so needed right now. You know, and I mean, uh, depending on, I guess, what state or country you're in, you know, some people are saying post pandemic, but, you know, is as in 2022 or April 2022, but, you know, it's still, it's still running all over the world and, um, and who knows if it'll come back or not, but it, either way, you know, we've, we've been hit hard, I guess, when it comes to social relationships, gathering in place, you know, in person and, um, uh, rather than sheltering in place, I guess. And so, so no, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I obviously I I'm, st I'm studying social relationships and how that has an impact on, on health in my doctoral program right now. And so it's obviously something that I'm, that I'm super passionate about. So I'm, I'm super, I'm so excited for your book, um, and to share it with other people. 
So, okay. So before, before we get into um, friendships and, and, and marriage, cause you, you, you go into that in your book too, let's, let's talk a little bit about narcissists. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, I really only bring this up because um, you know, of the, of the, the numbers you talked about in, in, in your book of how um, you know, the fact that um there's there's more people who are, are i guess less empathetic um and and there's there's i guess more narcissists now than there used to be and according to some of the studies that are out there um and also i'm kind of interested because i was i was in a relationship with one a while back and um anyway so how how do we best deal with just like an unavoidable narcissist that's in our life uh it's i mean it's actually it's actually quite simple. Uh, and by, by simple, I don't necessarily mean easy. I mean, non-complex uh, in the sense that the first line response, you know, is basically no contact. Uh, just yeah. don't deal with them anymore, ever, yeah. in any way, again. But, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to leave it at that because, you know, often that's, that's not easy. And that's something I, yeah. I get into in the book is that, you know, uh, if you work with one or work for one, you know, quitting mm -hmm. your job isn't always an immediate option. You know, if you're married to one, if your child is one, I mean, so it's that no contact is the best and most effective solution, but it's, I'm not saying that it's like simple and easy for, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. No. And it's, uh, it's definitely, um, it's tricky, uh, to, 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 you know, to have one in your life. And yeah, uh, I think I read something about how, um, it is probably that it, it, they're kind of like trolls, like you, you know, don't, don't feed the troll or else they'll keep coming back to eat. And, um, and so, yeah, like a narcissist, if you, if, if there is somebody who you can avoid for sure, avoid them, but otherwise, you know, <clears throat> like what are, what are a couple things that maybe, or one thing that, that might be helpful if you have somebody that's, that is close to you, you know, I mean, that you just don't know how to, to, uh, I guess to deal with, but that are, and they're difficult and whether, you know, they're a narcissist or not, um, like what, what would be a tip that you might give? Uh, basically, you know, it's, if, if somebody is, has like clinical NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. um, you know, just like you, you're not going to be able to deal with this and to, to do, to do what you need to deal with this would, basically ruin you for other relationships in a lot of ways. The most, most clinical narcissists typically have negative treatment outcome, meaning treatment actually makes them worse. Mm. Um, so the issue is if this is somebody who has some narcissistic traits, you know, where that's an aspect of their personality, then there might be, there might be some hope and versus somebody who, like I said, is at the clinical level, uh, where, you know, forget about it. You're, 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 I would, I would sooner tell you to do your own appendectomy than try and, you know, <laughs> deal with a clinical narcissist. So if somebody, like I said, is on the subclinical level, if it's just one aspect of their personality, we can use what are called empathy prompts. This is, uh, this is, uh, Craig Malkin has, has discussed this a lot. Basically mm -hmm. that people who are cluster B who are narcissists, you know, they, it's not that they totally lack empathy. It's just that that muscle is kind of weak and we can activate it. And this isn't critical thinking. This is critical feeling. This is an mm. emotional approach. And by, you can try three things, which is emphasizing similarity, 
emphasizing vulnerability, emphasizing community. What's really interesting about, about this, and that's probably most helpful, is that these can help soften a narcissist, help open them up a little bit, but this, these also act as a litmus test. In other words, if these have zero effect on how the person behaves and how they respond to you, then they probably are, you know, more, more, more clinical. And yeah. you, you either want to keep your distance or if they're clinical and you can't no contact, then what you need to do is you need to downshift to a totally transactional relationship and you need to focus mm. on boundaries and bargaining. You need to make clear what you will not accept anymore in the future. You can't be mean about it, but you need to be firm. And then it's bargaining. It is literally fine if you want this, I'll do this. And always price above market and be very <laughs> firm and consistent because uh, if if you have something narcissists want, they will often play ball, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, another good tip uh, from uh, uh, from Albert Bernstein, who's a clinical psychologist, is uh, if you catch a narcissist trying to uh, trying to you know uh, cut corners, play games, is to ask what will people think because you know guilting a narcissist generally doesn't work because they don't really feel guilt like we do, but. Mm -hmm. Im implying that they might be embarrassed, they might be ashamed, they might be judged by others. They're usually very concerned with appearances. So that can be a good strategy. But for, like I said, for the, for subclinical, for people who are like, just that's an aspect of their personality by emphasizing your similarity with them, emphasizing, you know, vulnerability, your feelings and emphasizing community, friends and people you have in common, these things can help or, like I said, at least give you a litmus test that this is somebody you need to get away from. I love that. That's super interesting. And I think that is a great litmus test. And um, I also love that yeah, down, downshifting to a transactional relationship. That's, I mean, even though, you know, it's kind of, <clears throat> it could be kind of depressing to, to think, okay, I got to do that. It'll probably be so helpful for you <laughs> if you do. <Yeah. laughs> so um, that's great. No, this is, this is really helpful. So um, thanks for, yeah, kind of humoring me talking about narcissists for there for a second there. Um, and I, I'd love to dive into talking a little bit about, um, about loneliness. You mentioned a little bit about this too. Um, uh, Cassiopo's work as well as, um, a few others. And this is my, uh, advisor's area of expertise as well. Uh, Julianne Holt Lundstad and, um, I'm, I'm starting to kind of dive into this literature, um, on a few studies that we're doing this summer. Uh, so I'd love to kind of just open that that conversation up a little bit too. So what um, what are some tips from from the book on let's just say somebody who who's experiencing what they think is loneliness? Um, what can they you know what are what are some things that they might uh, do to 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 help with the loneliness? I guess the loneliness is really interesting because in looking at the research something that totally blew me away was uh, Fayel Birdie uh, uh, is a historian at University of York. And what she saw that was that basically before the 19th century, loneliness didn't exist. Now, that <laughs> sounds crazy. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it sounds impossible, it's, but it's only a small exaggeration. If you look at most texts that, you know, before the 19th century that use the word lonely, you know, it might mean isolated, but it didn't have the negative connotation uh, that it does now it was only actually with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that we first started to see loneliness being this negative, uh, you know, uh, thing that had this negative valence to it. 
Mm-hmm. And that, if you think about it, it's because before the 19th century, we were all, you know, very much enmeshed in communities. You know, we were mm-hmm. all part of, you know, yeah. a group, a tribe, a nation, a religion, you know, all those things, you felt a part of it. And that's what's really interesting is when you tie it in with, as you mentioned, Cacioppo's work, where basically what he found is that lonely people don't spend any less time on average than non-lonely people do with others. Mm. And that sounds crazy. But yeah, it's it, crazy. But it, but, it make, but it actually makes sense because we've, we have all felt lonely in a crowd. Yeah. And if loneliness is really about proxi- proximity to other people, then how, to, how can you feel lonely in a crowd? And mm. so what this comes down to is that, you know, obviously spending time with other people, you know, face-to-face is really good, but that's not what's at the core of loneliness. Loneliness is a subjective experience, it's a subjective feeling, as Cacioppo says himself. Loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. It is mm. your perception of your relationships. And so for those experiencing loneliness, you know, maybe you are cut off from others as many of us were in the pandemic. Maybe you don't have as many relationships as you like, but it can be a red herring to just look at those factors and not say to yourself, it's like, okay, how do I feel about my relationships? You know, it's like people who are, have a good marriage, people who are part of their religious community, people who are part of, you know, their homeowners association, when they travel, you know, they don't necessarily, they might miss some people, but they don't feel desperate loneliness because they have the feeling that people, people care about me. People love me. I'm, they're not in front of me right now, but I know that I'm a part of something and people, they feel good about those relationships, even though those people aren't proximate. So a real focus mm-hmm. that we need to think about, like I said, face FaceTime is fantastic, but you know, that isn't necessarily the key. It's, it's how do we feel about our relationships? Do we feel like there are people that we're close to? So do we need to deepen our relationships? Do we need to become part of a group, a community? Do we need to volunteer? Do we need to put ourselves in a situation you know, which many people these days are loath to do where others are dependent upon us, where we feel an obligation to others, but that we, we therefore feel needed, you know, part of the reason why 19th century to now, uh, you know, we've had this tremendous increase in loneliness is because of such a rise in individualism, mm-hmm. you know, we're so focused on ourselves and, to shift that perspective and think, what are my connections to others? How do I feel about them? Are they deep? Do I, do I need others? And do I feel like others need me? And am I part, am I a node in a network? And that's, and that's a good thing. Like, I think most of us these days try and resist obligation, you know, resist connection. And we do need part of that. So, so I would say to, you know, to reduce loneliness is to, to think about your perception of your relationships and then actually to think about to deepen them, to become, you know, more a part of, you know, a group, connect with your family, connect with your friends, you know, connect with a religious institution, you know, volunteer, do something where you feel a part of something and where you are in fact obligated and people need you. I think that's really powerful. Thank you. Those are really great uh, tips. And I think that's so interesting, even just to think about how the perception of the existence of people in our lives, like, like the, the, the mere presence of them in our mind, right. Not even like, they don't even have to be, uh, you know, actually 
you know, I guess close friends, but if we think that they are, if we think that we're a part of a community, if we think that, you know, like you said, if we feel needed um, in some way uh, and in our minds, you know, I, I was talking to somebody about this, of how even just um, thinking that, that somebody like, I, I have a friend who I don't really get together with other than maybe every, I don't know, six months. <laughs> yeah. And, <clears throat> and it was so interesting because he said something like, Andy, you're, I consider you one of my best friends. And I was like, wait a second, we haven't even gotten together in like six months, you know, but, but to him, it was like this interesting, uh, you know, phenomena where like he, he said that he thought that I was one of his best friends. And so for him, you know, the, the, the presence of me in his mind as his friend, like is super important anyway. So I just think that's so interesting. Um, and so maybe, like you said, it's, it's kind of like, what can we do to increase that, you know, imaginary presence of people in our head? Um, I mean, it's great to have the in-person as well, but like you said, uh, uh, from Cacioppo's work, it's like, you can be around people, but not actually feel close to them. And so, yeah, that's, that's really, I just, obviously I think it's really interesting stuff. So, <laughs> um, Okay, so friendship, I, I want to dive into friendship a little bit too. Um, and uh, it's a very related topic, I think. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's something that I'm, I'm studying in my, in my doctoral program. Um, haven't really been able to dive super deeply into it yet. Um, uh, I'm just a first year PhD student, but uh, soon I will. And I, what I want to understand is really how different types of friendships have an impact on, on biomarkers of health. Um, but I love that you brought up, uh, some, some kind of health psychology on friendship in, in your book. Um, and, uh, so I'd love to kind of talk a, a little bit about some of those sections. Um, maybe let's start with, with talking about, you know, vulnerability and how, how vulnerability has an impact on, on friendship, um, and even on, on our health. Yeah. I mean, Friendship's really interesting because it, it just doesn't get, it really doesn't get discussed. You know, I think yeah. if you look at the amount, you know, uh, basically friend is used in the English language more than any other relational term, including mother and father. Mm. You know, we, we think about our friends a great deal, you know, yet we don't treat friends as, as seriously because there's no there's no institution, there's no, there's no metaphorical lobbying group, uh, you know, working for friendships interests. You know, <laughs> if you, if, if, if you have a problem in your marriage, you can go to a marriage counselor. If you're, if you have, you know, if your child has problems, you can take to a child therapist, but like friends, we, they what do we do? We usually kind of just let them fade. And this is, you know, it's kind of ironic, uh, in that way. So, friendship gets the short end of the stick often. And yet the research consistently shows that friends make us happier than any other relationship. I mean, this is, and this is, this is, you know, Nobel prize winner, Daniel Kahneman's work. I mean, that, you know, yeah. basically, and even, even in marriage, the, the aspect of marriage that is most conducive to happiness, you know, is the friendship aspect uh, of it. And, mm. you know, yet, you know, friendship, you know, kind of gets screwed. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we don't, but there is an, there is an interesting, uh, there is an interesting, you know, kind of double-edged sword kind of thing there where, you know, basically because friendship does not have any institution supporting it, you know, 
basically you have to like your friends. You know, your, yeah. your spouse does not stop being your spouse uh, because you stop liking them. Your boss doesn't stop being your boss. Your children don't stop being your children. You have to like your friends. Mm. And if you don't, you can just walk away and, and that's yeah. it. And while, like I said, that's sad and that, that makes friendship more difficult to manage, uh, on the other hand, you know, the fragility of friendship in that way proves its purity, you know, because that's why they make mm. us so happy, because there's no obligation. You're only there because you, en you, you enjoy this person's company and they enjoy yours. So there's no other reason to spend time with someone except that you like them. And that's, that's really the, the power, you know, of friendship. And in terms of health, I mean, friendships, it's, it's enormous. I mean, uh, you know, Robin Dunbar, you know, famous for mm, the, the yeah. Oxford professor, famous for the Dunbar number. Yeah. He looked at all the data, uh, you know, on people recovering from a heart attack and basically said that one year after a heart attack, you know, what, what's, what, what will determine whether you're alive or not? And he basically said, it's whether you smoke and, and how, how many friends you have of everything other than that, the Delta between that and everything else was enormous. You know, Huge, just, yeah. <laughs> those were the only two that really made a difference. And you see this repeatedly in the data. If you look at, you know, if you look at women being treated for breast cancer, you know, a spouse had no, no correlation with, you know, results and health. You know, it was all about how many friends did you have men recovering from a heart attack, you know, same thing, just spouse didn't make a difference. You know, friends did, you see it again and again. And vulnerability is really critical in terms mm -hmm. of, of friendships, because basically in the end, you know, I, in the book, I get into Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. And, and many yeah. of the things hold up. Dale was, Dale was wrong about, about one thing, which was saying we should, we should put ourselves in the, we should try and put ourselves in the shoes, of the other person, take the other person's perspective. And, and if you look at Nicholas Epley, uh, out of U Chicago's work, you're like, basically we're terrible at that. We're, we're, we're horrible at that. It, it, <laughs> that actually makes our, our perception of their thoughts worse. But that said, Dale Carnegie stuff is really good for the beginning of relationships, but we like it because it's easy, you know, and, and yeah. that's why it can be used manipulatively because it's easy. And mm, the truth yeah. is to deepen friendships, we need, we need to take a term from economics. We need what are called costly signals. And the two most powerful costly signals are time and vulnerability time. Cause you only have 24 hours in a day. That's, that's it. If you consistently give someone time that shows they matter, it's a costly mm. signal. Same thing. If you're opening up about things that could be used against you about things that might make you look bad about things that make you look weak, um, that you're trusting someone you're handing, yeah. you're, you're handing them a metaphorical gun that they could shoot you with. Right. And that shows you trust them. And Diego Gambetta's work shows that usually how trust is created is you put yourself out there and then the other person feels safe putting themselves out there. So in the book, I talk about the scary rule, which is basically if it's, if it's, if it scares you say it, um, you know, now again, you, you should be incremental about it. Don't, don't confess to any murders at Christmas dinner, but like, you know, <laughs> just, just be incremental. But by opening up, you know, you, you are giving, you are telling the other person that they matter. You're telling the other person you trust them. That allows them to trust you. You're telling them that this is a safe place and that you're going to treat them like they're safe and that they can perhaps treat you like you're safe. So vulnerability is, is really critical. And that was how uh, Arthur Aaron managed to get people to feel like lifelong friends in 45 minutes was by, you know, asking deep, op you know, open, vulnerable questions. That's really, that's powerful stuff. And 
gosh, it's like you're, uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. And I love, I love all these uh, things about friendship and so interested in all the, all the research that's already, that's already been done from, yeah, Dunbar's stuff is so good. And, and, um, and even, I guess it's, uh, I believe Jeff Hall, you're talking about yeah, yeah, um, the of, time. Friendship, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And, um, but yeah, I love that, that idea of costly signals uh, for improving friendship, like time and vulnerability. And, um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of all, all different kinds of models about, about how to improve friends and, and, and deepen friendships. And um, it seems like they all are kind of saying a lot of the same things, intimacy or vulnerability, time um, or consistency, and then like positivity as well. So I think that's, that's good, good stuff. So, man, I, I, uh, I think it's so important. Um, and it, especially as, you know, as adults, I think, friendship almost like takes the back seat or something. Um, because I think, I think it's simply just because we have so many transitions that just are, um, societally expected of us to change roles. And so, you know, whether it's because we move out of state or out of town, um, and so, you know, proximity is powerful and we stop just simply spending time with the people, um, or our friends, or it's, you know, a job changer, we have kids or we, uh, you know, get married and, and, and we think that roles are supposed to change. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think it's definitely, um, worth it to, especially like you're talking about, right. All these things that have an impact on our health, um, especially old, uh, later in life. Um, it's so important, um, to, to prioritize friendships, you know, not, not just, um, the family relationships, but, but the, you know, the friends that we actually choose and, and, and enjoy. So, um, yeah, I love that. Uh, so I'd love to, to, to talk about, uh, marriage now a little bit. Um, so, uh, so I've, I've been married for about, um, gosh, let's see here. It's going to be nine years at the end of June, which is crazy. Um, (laughs) but, uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, but, I, but I've been married twice now. So this is my second marriage. First one was pretty, um, pretty quick and, and traumatic, <laughs> but, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, it, it ended fast. Um, and it's interesting, than because, long and traumatic <laughs> yeah, it is better than long and traumatic. So, um, but yeah, uh, I, um, <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the difference between the two. Uh, and, um, but it's, but it's also so important for so many people and, and, um, reading about a lot of the research that talks about how marriage is, you know, so important for your health and, um, people who are married, you know, are more likely to, to live longer and to, uh, I mean, all, all kinds of different things benefits, uh, to, to marriage for health and, and economics and all kinds of things. And so if people actually want to stay married, right. Um, let's say they're, they're, they're kind of like me, you know, they're kind of early on in their marriage and they want to stay married. Um, I guess, you know, in your book, you talk about, um, about the fact that people, I can't remember the actual figure from the Gottmans. I think it is that's like, uh, you know, most marriages have, um, have unresolved conflicts like for, for forever. Right. Um, 69%. Yeah. 69% that's just crazy. <laughs> um, and I can attest to that. So, um, but you know, is it more important to, I guess, not have those, 
um, kind of going into a marriage or to be able to just, you know, talk about it in a good way or, or talk about it well. I mean, if, you know, if you're talking about like very, very, very serious and, you know, you're, you're not married yet, then yeah, maybe, maybe you would want to avoid being with somebody, <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, you have, you know, very, very, very different attitudes. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the point from Gottman's work there is that, you know, 69% of, uh, you know, serious marital issues, you know, never get resolved. And, and I think a lot of people on its face would take that as depressing, but it doesn't need to be. That's true of happily married people and unhappily married people. And the takeaway there is that basically it's not about like having a happy marriage is not necessarily about the resolution of conflict. It's about the regulation of conflict. You know, mm. it's not about, oh, we should never fight, you know, and oh, if we have these differences, then it's not going to work. You know, no, that's not necessarily true. You know, it's about the regulation of conflict. It's about how, you know, compassionate you are. It's about how respectful you are. It's about, you may have a difference, you know, in terms of your values with your partner, but just respecting that and honoring that, you know, most people just try and avoid it wholesale. And that's just really not an option. You know, Gottman has this fantastic quote where he says, like, if, if you're in a long-term committed relationship and you've never had a serious fight, uh, please do that immediately. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> is that if you've never, if you've never had an argument with somebody, you, you, that's, you have no idea, you know, about that aspect of them. And that's mm. very serious, but yeah, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, not, not fighting is a good sign, but you know, that's, that's not true because oftentimes, you know, the suppression of those issues, those concerns leads to longer term problems. The, the truth is that only 40% of the time does screaming matches lead to divorce. You know, the majority of the time, what happens when you, when you're screaming, you care. And when the other person yeah. is screaming, they care. What happens is that eventually the other person stops caring. You know, they, they mm -hmm. don't even bother raising the issue. They've decided that you're demon spawn and they're not even going to bother to raise the issue anymore. And then people begin living parallel lives. And that is what is usually precedes, uh, precedes divorce. So mm -hmm. the idea that you can avoid communication and avoid conflict and that will be fine. It's just not realistic. You know, you have to, ha you have to argue that will mean fighting. But like I said, the majority of the time, you know, fighting isn't what leads to it. It's, it's, you know, it's opening up the issues because otherwise what happens is people shut down, you know, they still have the issues, they still have the problems, but instead of having a conversation with their partner about them, they only start having a conversation with themselves and it just, and they start attributing reasons to the other person's behavior, which probably aren't accurate and become increasingly negative. And then what you see is something Gottman talks about called a uh, negative sentiment override, where mm -hmm. basically the idealization, which is the hallmark of love, the hallmark of the seeing your partner as better than they are, that flips. And mm -hmm. so instead of idealization, negative sentiment override is sort of this devilizing, as Albert mm -hmm. Ellis called it, where you just assume that, you know, they didn't take out the trash. You know, it's not because they forgot. It's because they are a terrible person bent on destroying <laughs> my life, you know, and the only way to clear up those assumptions is to talk. And so you're going to, you got to talk, you got to mm -hmm. fight, but in the short term, that's stressful, but it's necessary for the long term. Yeah. That's really, really important. I think 
And I, I think uh, that's so interesting that, for, yeah, 40% of screaming matches are, are end in divorce, but not, but, you know, that's pretty low um, considering. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think that's so interesting to the negative sentiment override and, and how, you know, your perception of that person flips, um, you know, and it's, it's no longer like a process problem. It's like a person problem. Right. And it, turns into personalizing and instead of it just being, well, you know, I just didn't take out the trash or do the dishes or whatever, pay the bills or something. And so people think, people think it's that it's often about the facts. And I mean, it's, it's rarely about facts. It's about that deference and that compassion. You know, if somebody, a stranger comes up to you on the street and says, uh, give me a hundred dollars, I promise I'll pay you back. Versus if a friend comes up and says, let me a hundred dollars, I promise I'll pay you back. Mm. You know, the facts in those situations are, are the same, but it's like you, you trust your friend, you believe your friend. So your responses are going to be completely different. And in that same way, you know, in, in the early stages of love, people have positive sentiment override. You know, if you didn't take out the trash, oh, my fantastic spouse must have forgot. Oh, oh, they're, oh, they're silly like that, but it's not a problem. Versus when it flips, you know, it's, it's now, you know, oh, you know, oh, this terrible person, oh, they're, they're trying to torment me, you know, that, that can happen. It's really because the thing is, we think that it's going to be this kind of very logical process. And over time, when there's not communication, when there's not positive feelings, uh, or at least enough positive feelings to compensate for the negative moments, uh, what you see in the relationship not in the facts, but in the relationship, the perception of the people is you see a phase change. It's like ice, you know, water gets colder, it gets colder, it gets colder, and it doesn't just keep getting colder. At some point, bang, it becomes ice, water becomes ice. There's a phase mm-hmm. change. And that's what you see here is mm-hmm. that negative thing happens, negative things happens, and then eventually it's just, you know, I can't trust this person. You know, they're, they're an idiot. They're out to get me. And that negativity. And that's why Gottman, you know, like Gottman's big claim to fame is that with over 90% accuracy, he's able to predict whether couples will divorce in five years. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is that, that, you know, his success in that arena is largely due just to asking, asking the couple to tell their story. Mm-hmm. And through that story, you can usually determine, you know, how, how good the relationship is going. Because if people, if people celebrate the struggle, if people say we had tough times, we overcame it and we're happy and we're, you know, that's the hallmark of a great relationship where that kind of positive bias that tones down the the negative you know that's the big hallmark so it's not just about the facts you know it's about our perception of the the other person and the only way to keep that accurate is ongoing communication yeah that's really just so interesting thank you so much for for talking about marriage i think marriage is 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 super important obviously in in my life and in so many of the listeners lives as well um and it's a topic that i think a lot of people have been um really wanting to to learn and understand more about and another topic i think that's something that a lot of the listeners are really interested in like you were saying you know we go from reading your marriage posts and uh to to reading the the parent or dating posts to reading the parenting posts (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if there's any uh any myths about uh you know parenting um you know relationships with kids that that you bring up in the book um that uh, the listeners you think the listeners should should know about 
I don't actually get into uh, parenting in, okay. in the in in the book, but I I'm, but I'm happy to to make a contribution there. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that you know pe- people people underestimate genetics. You know, it's like it mm. is it is enormous. You know, your kids, <laughs> you know, your kids are part of you. Your kids are part of your 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 partner, uh, and you know that's a that's a big big part of it. And we. And I, I, some people perhaps might take this negatively. I take it as a positive because a lot of parents these days are driving themselves crazy with helicopter parenting and feeling mm-hmm. like they have to do everything. And if, and if they don't, you know, help their kids with, you know, every single thing and get them into the best school and do this and violin lessons and every single thing. And the truth is, you know, genetics play a big part. You know, it's like your influence as a parent is less than you think. And again, some people <laughs> might take some people might take that as as insulting, but you know, it's it you should take it as a positive in the sense of, you know, what you what you do every day is not as important as, you know, the fact that your your kid shares, you know, a lot of your traits, a, a lot of those those aspects. You know, a lot of that work is already done. You know, so you, you don't have to drive yourself insane. It's me is the positive takeaway. You don't have to drive. Now, look, you can have negative effects on a kid if, if, if you abuse them or you jump. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, you, you could screw a kid up. I, I, got, sure. I got no, I got no, you could definitely screw a kid up. Yeah. You know? But I think a lot of people feel like they have to do everything all the time, 100% to make their kid the best. And hey, those things are positive and they can help, but to understand, you know, that yeah. like what, what, what you do is not as important as like who you are, who, who your partner is in terms of, of your children. So you don't have to drive yourself insane. <laughs> that, that, that's good to know. That's, that's good to know that, that, that uh, uh, decreases my blood pressure uh, significantly <laughs> right, right now. <laughs> my wife's pregnant with our first and she's about to have the baby in June. So, Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting and also uh, kind of nerve wracking, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, as long as I can keep the baby alive, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be a success. No, no, I'll trust on those, on the, on, on that advice about genetics. So the, big, um, the two biggest influences on, on, you know, who a kid, who a kid is and how they do. Like I said, abuse, abuse and horrible sure. situations aside, <laughs> you know, number one is their genetics and number two is peer group, you mm, know? So, yeah. so, so definitely in terms of, you know, living in a, living in a good neighborhood, your kids being good schools, your kids spending time with other kids, that can be positive, but parental, you know, how parents, you know, act is, is, is less. It's like, I don't know if in your PhD program, if you've looked at any of the twin studies, yeah. but that gives you, that gives you a deep insight into it that, you know, when you take yeah. twins and you separate them, you take identical twins, and you separate them at birth and they grow up in different households, you know, they are far, far more end up as adults, far, far more similar than different. And the effect of the households is minuscule compared to the similarities they share due to their genetics. That's that's super interesting. Yeah. And, uh, very, uh, calming as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> um, but, uh, th- this has been great, Eric. I, I really enjoy, uh, just hanging out with you and thank you so much for, for all this advice, all these tips from, from your book, super excited for it to come out. 
Um, one question I ask all the guests that I, that I have on the show is, um, you know, if you had any other advice, um, you know, whether it's related to your book or not, or any of your posts or whatever that, uh, you know, if there's listeners out there who just are desperate to improve their happiness, to have a, a more happy life today, what, what would you tell them? Uh, I would say on the, on the, on the topic of, uh, marriage and long-term relationships, uh, another really valuable finding from John Gottman is that uh, just by listening to the first three minutes of a conversation, he could determine with 96% accuracy how the conversation would end. Hmm. And basically what that means is if a conversation starts harsh, it's going to end harsh. <laughs> and that wasn't, and listening to that first three minutes was not merely predictive at the end of the conversation. It was also predictive of divorce. So, you know, a very easy, simple thing you can do is if you're going to raise an issue that you know could turn into a fight, that you know could turn into a debate, you know, maybe you've been down that road before, take a deep breath, be calm, don't point fingers, don't call names, just neutrally, you know, present the issue because harsh startup is, is deadly and you can present the same facts without doing it in an aggressive accusational way. And that, and that can make a big difference in your romantic relationships. I love that. And I, you know, I think that's, that that's really important for marriage or, or, or even if family relationships or friendships, you know, when you're bringing stuff that's hard up that you need to talk about. So that's really, really important. So Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. I know you uh, don't have a ton of it, uh, especially right now with all the, all the book stuff, but um, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll definitely put the, um, you know, any, all of your links in, in the show notes. Um, but where could people find you, uh, who are listening? Uh, I mean, they can, if they, if they, the, my URL is a little tricky, uh, yeah, but they go to, if they go to, if they go to eric blog, that'll redirect. So E R I C B A R K E R dot blog will redirect to my, my very confusing website name. Uh, the, the book, you know, the book is plays well with others. Uh, it's out May 10th and, uh, no, man, this has been great. Thank you. Absolutely.